C.S. Lewis once said that if you put first things first, second things will be thrown in. And if you put second things first, you will lose both first and second things. It's no doubt that C.S. Lewis was taking this cue or this idea from Jesus' words in Matthew 6.33 when Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. Seek first the kingdom of God, and there's a really important line here, and his righteousness and all things will be added. This idea of putting things first uh, really does represent or paint a a phenomenal picture of Abraham uh, in the scriptures. Of course, Abraham doesn't always put God first. Abraham, well, I, I suppose I would qualify that by saying Abraham puts God first, but he doesn't always put God's plan and God's timing first, right? And so um, he doesn't get it all right. He makes mistakes. But the one beautiful thing about Abraham is that he learns from those mistakes and he returns to those first things and he seeks God's kingdom and he seeks that righteousness. And this should be who you are and should be who I am. Amen? So putting the first things first really does, uh, does change our minds. Uh, and, and there's a giant war, I think, inside of our heads where we ask, what is first? What is second? What, you know, how does this order go? I think we've gotten ourselves a bit confused with things like, I've got to put God first, and I've taught this, so I'm, I'm here to do my due diligence to correct the record on some of these things. But the idea of put God first and then, and then find this really mystical order of it's your wife second or your husband second, it's your kids third and all this other stuff. And every time I tell my kids that they fall way down in the pecking order, they're pretty mad at me, right? But um, here's, the, here's the issue. I think, I think we've broken that a bit and I think we've broken it in the same way. I think we've broken it and we can fix it by looking at our relationship with God in the same way that we look at our relationship with our children. Um, We generally don't have favorites. I'm looking at you guys. Generally, we don't have favorites. I love it because moms right now are like, you're my favorite. I mean, you're my favorite, right? You know, so that's how that works. But, but we generally don't. We, don't. we don't really ask the question of who's getting priority or, or who's behind. I mean, maybe you feel that way at times, but you love your kids, right? You just love your kids. And I think that there's a challenge for us that we have to work this order out in our head that makes, our, makes, makes us feel better or more pious or religious or something like this, where we say, well, God is first in my life and everything else is second. And then all of a sudden you realize you're working 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, and you're doing all this stuff for who? For your family. And then you have this guilt that overcomes you and you say, well, maybe I'm serving my family first and God's second. And I just want to tell you, that's just nonsense and your orders just, you've, you've been You've been sold a bill of goods on weird order, okay? You've been sold a bill of goods. And I did part of the selling back in the day. The idea is that we put first things first. We put God's way first. We put God's, um, God's commands and his, and his ideas first. So it would be putting God first to love your neighbor as yourself. Did you know that? 
It would be putting God first to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It would be putting God first to husbands, honor your wives, and wives, honor your husbands. That's putting God first. What we've done is we've just made this weird order where we're like, basically we're repeating what the Pharisees struggled with uh, in Jesus' day. They said, no, what I have is by way of money is given to God. It's Corbin. And sadly, we've just over-spiritualized Christianity, and we've made the same problem. We said, well, I've, I've got to love God first, honey. Right? Meanwhile, she's going to strangle you while you're sleeping, right? So, so the idea is you love her with all your heart. You love him with all your heart. You give these things, and in doing that, we're actually loving God and putting him first. So Abraham does this really well, and he, like us, he, gets, he makes many mistakes and screws the whole thing up, right? Back in Genesis 15, we read this amazing statement of Abraham. It says, he believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what are we supposed to be seeking first? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Abraham gets this righteousness because he trusts God. He he puts his faith in him, and he obeys. And it's really important that we connect trust, mental assent, uh, believing in something with I'm actually going to do what he says. If you do not love your neighbor as yourself, I can tell you, you have stopped putting God first. You go, Nathan, that's just, you don't know my neighbor. I don't have to know your neighbor. Uh, Jesus hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If he can do that when he was innocent, I'm sure you can get along with your daggone neighbor when you're probably not keeping up your grass or something. That's just me, anyway. So, so he credited to him as righteousness. It also is why the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham... When he, called, uh, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, I love this, God called him to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance. That's just lame, right? Now just give it to me now. I want the keys, I want the title, I want the deed, right? No, it, later, okay? And I love what it says, what he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Please throw out the notion, by the way, this is the New Testament. Please throw out the notion that all you have to do is mentally ascend to the belief in God. Please throw out the notion that all you have to do is believe in some sort of faith that's a mystery that no one actually knows whether or not you have or not. Because that's not faith. James tells us, faith that doesn't have feet is not faith. And look at what was amazing about Abraham. He obeyed and he went. Even though he did not know where he was going. Which is because he's a man. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. That sounds pretty good, actually. Anyway, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. I love the fact that they were heirs of the same promise, but they're all waiting on it. They're all waiting on something. And Abraham, Abraham even dies without having 
received that. That's what Hebrews goes on to say. For he was looking forward, and this is kind of the key line in this. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. What was Abraham looking for? A kingdom and his righteousness. See, Abram kept first things first. He keeps first things first. And at no point when he gets up off of his butt and walks into Canaan and does all the things that God asks him to do, at no point does God go, I think you're making other things first, Abraham. I think you've put me second. No, that's exactly what it means to put God first. So when we're Christians and we're supposed to love each other, That's loving God. When we're Christians and we're supposed to take care of the poor, help those in need, all of those pieces, that's loving God. When we're Christians and we are commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that is loving God. To do opposite of that would be to get the order wrong, to make second things your priority and not the first things So, the idea of putting first things first is an extremely practical idea. What I mean, though, is that there are very obvious actions associated with it, but I wouldn't be doing you uh, justice or the subject justice if I didn't clarify one very important point concerning practicality and the Bible. Contrary to popular preaching, contrary to popular teaching, the Bible does not hold your hand and tell you what to do. That's what people want today. What people want is for for the preacher to look at them and say, just do X. But the Bible doesn't say those things. Of course, there you could fill in the X with don't murder somebody. I would highly recommend you keep that one right? But that is not what practicality is. Instead, what the Bible often does is a more philosophical approach. What you see is an approach that allows you to think through situations with a level head. What does that require? It requires wisdom and discernment. Jesus says things like, seek first the kingdom. What the heck does that mean? I just went through some ideas, but it means a lot of things to a lot of different people because God's talking to you in your world and what you're doing, and it's different from what I'm doing, right? There are governing ethics and ideas like that. None of us should be murdering or pillaging or any of those things, but the idea still remains that if you're a teacher, you're going to do those things within that context. If you're a preacher, you're going to do those things within that context. If you're a mechanic, you're going to do those things within that context. Does that make sense to you? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. That's not specific. And he assumes we understand how that's supposed to be, how life is supposed to be done this way. Uh, The apostle Paul does the same thing. He says, I want you to put off your old self. How many of you are like, I'm clear. I know exactly what that is. No. There's times when you know clearly. Stop being a jerk, right? That's your old self. Loving yourself more than others, that, that's clearly a, a put off yourself thing. But Paul says put off your old self and it is blanketed under a myriad of things. 
or that blankets a myriad of things, right? Paul also says, don't sin in your anger. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I don't know. Somebody helps, help me with that anytime you want to. I'd, I'd love to hear it because I, I do the anger thing really easily. Don't give the devil a foothold. Okay. I didn't leave a spot out in the front door, right? I have no idea what he's talking about. But I know exactly what he's talking about, right? Because the philosophy, the idea that you must use wisdom to work ideas out is clearly stated. The idea that in different situations, you can maintain a level head because you've been equipped and you've been, a, you've been prepared for all of life is what the, the scripture actually teaches us. It's an amazing thing. But did you notice that Paul and Jesus, they all assume we know what they mean. Because you do know what they mean. But you know what they mean because of the spirit that dwells inside of you. Because of the scripture that God has written to you. And because of the community that surrounds you and says, don't do that. Or that looks about right. And we help one another along the way. Today, we're going to journey through Genesis 18. And I want to point out two kind of overarching ideas that Abraham understood. And these are ideas that we need to apply. And guess what, guys? They're still going to be big ideas that you're going to have to go home and think about. You're going to have to go to the grocery store and apply it however God prompts you to apply it. I could tell you all day, but it doesn't matter, okay? What you need to do is work through this. The first one of these is actually going to be the, the concept of hospitality. And then the second one is going to be um, uh, the disposition of the person being hospitable, that God and Abraham are friends, and it's an amazing concept, okay? And we're going to see what a friend can do by way of prayer and intercession. So I'll get more in depth in that one in just a second. So um, we start. With chapter 18. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre uh, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, so this is really important because the word here, Lord, is Yahweh. Okay? So, in, and it is the definite article, it is the Yahweh. It is the Lord. Okay? And there's going to be some other characters and we'll talk about uh, some of that. Right? So now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. Now, whatever Abraham sees, he sees men. He sees human beings. Okay? But whatever Abraham understands seems to be clear. He knows that one of them is God, okay? When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, and notice these, this language here, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Right away, when God shows up, Abraham goes into servant mode. This is what he does, right? So he sees God and he runs to him. He doesn't delay. He doesn't look at his watch. He doesn't say, God, I've got other things going on right now. He does no, no such thing. He runs. And there is significance to that, right? So he runs from the tent door to meet them, uh, all three of these people, and he bows to the earth. And he said, 
My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please don't pass your servant by. What's this about? It seems that Abraham just wants to be in community with his Lord. He sees him, okay? And then look at what he says. And we're going to contrast this next week with what Lot doesn't do, okay? Uh, Because they are two opposing characters in this. Uh, Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. So look at his hospitality as it stands right now. His first thing is he's really going to love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, okay? So my Lord, if I found favor, please don't pass me by. Come and dwell with me. Come and sit. I'll wash your feet. And I want you to rest under the trees. But while he's doing, while this is happening, he's running at all of these pieces. He wants them all to happen. Verse 5. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. What does he want? What does he want? Fellowship. He just wants to meet with his Lord. When's the last time that happened for you? When's the last time that you ran to God and just said, I just want to sit with you? This is important, church, because abiding with him is the only way you're going to find peace in this world. Abraham doesn't just abide with him. He hurries to do so. Look at what verse 6 says. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Sarah's ready. She's, she's looking to do what she needs to do, okay? Abraham also, now notice the, the wording here. Abram ran to them. Abram hurried to the tent. And then verse 7, Abram also, Abraham also ran to the herd. Okay? What's he going to do in this situation? He took a tender choice calf and gave it to the servant. Notice the, um, notice the uh, quality of this calf. It is not just, just give me a sheep, right? Or give me a goat or something like this. It is a tender choice calf. Something beautiful about him giving what is first, what is priority. This again is him keeping first things first. And he hurried to prepare it. So now we have hurried again. Ran, hurried, ran, hurried. This is, they're repeating this for, for a reason. Verse 8. He took curds of milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Now, in ancient times, or specifically in these times, uh, trees were somewhat sacred to to the Abrahamic faith. Um, The narratives about the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, provide insights into... um, the faith of God's people before they had established a priesthood or before they had established a tabernacle or even before God had established a law. And trees played a particular uh, interesting role inside of this. So every example in the Old Testament has this kind of like pivotal, every example of a tree and a kind of a memory or a marker has to do with worshiping God and and setting things uh, towards the direction that God wants them to set it to. So in Genesis 12, 6 through 7, the oak at Shechem, 
Shechem commemorates Yahweh's appearance to Abram uh, with the promise of the covenant, right? Later in Genesis 35, 4, uh, it marked the place where Jacob buried his family's idols to fulfill a vow to Yahweh. What did they do? They buried those vows or buried those idols to commit uh, to make a vow to God to make first things first, right? To return back to God. It just shows you over and over that we make tons of mistakes and, and we're always going to make those mistakes. But God is faithful and God is loving uh, with those who constantly seek after him. How many of you have ever felt like the last time you screwed up was just too much? God just doesn't want anything to do with you. Come on, raise your hands real big and look around. We struggle with this for whatever reason. We struggle with this. But the beauty is, if there is a day called today, the scripture says, and you are understanding of what happened, you can run back to the Father. Um, due to the events, the oak at Shechem became a sacred site in, um, in, in Israel's history. It was considered a place of divine residence and encountered many years, uh, kept being encountered many years after the patriarchs. And we go on and on with uh, the, the beauty of how things were viewed as sacred in that time. Um, so we go on, and we see, what, uh, we see what Abraham is doing with his hospitality. Now we're going to contr- contrast this just a tiny bit with Sarah. I think sometimes we make way too much of what Sarah did. I think the Bible just simply says what happened. And it shows that God was displeased or corrective of it. But in Hebrews, she is right along with this Hall of Fame of Faith. Because she too makes mistakes. Okay? So, um, so verse 9, it says, uh, then they said, let's go to verse 8. He took curds of milk and a calf which he had prepared, which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Verse 9, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, they're in the tent. Now, just we talk about biblical, uh, uh, biblical proofs that Abram knows Abraham. I, I'm stuck in a couple chapters ago. Um, biblical proof that Abraham knew this was the Lord. A couple of those are, how in the world do you know my wife's name? Might be the way you would respond to that. Where's Sarah at? What? Who's Sarah, right? Instead, he goes, she's in the tent because clearly they understand what's going on or at least the Lord understands what's going on. So he says, Sarah Sarah is in the tent. Verse 10, he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door, which was behind him. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, Sarah was past childbearing. So she was, uh, some translations say something like she was beyond, um, uh, she was past childbearing or beyond what, what women could do. I mean, there's all kinds of weird ways that it's phrased. So then verse 12 hits us, and, and we want to put this in its context, right? So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Okay. So one more thing that I think is just fascinating with regard to people's weird interpretations of weird understandings of inspiration. 
Um, you would think in two verses, and it being the Lord, he would get the words right. The idea is what is inspired here. We love to talk about every word being inspired, and you got to add every word in here. Do you notice this? What did Sarah say? After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? It's literally not word for word what she said. But it is what she said, right? God has inspired his scripture. He just hasn't done it the way men think he has, right? And what you need to do with that is gain a better understanding when you're reading scripture because it's going to come in handy when critics constantly feed you stuff like that's wrong, that doesn't agree with this, this is incorrect, like numbers in Chronicles or numbers in Kings, where in one instance of a battle, it's a summation of all things, a, a rough estimation, I guess, and then the other one, it seems more accurate. It doesn't matter. The point is, this happened and God said it. Amen? Very important. So Sarah laughs to herself. Now, how many of you know there's different ways to laugh? Yeah, right? Somebody tells me a joke, I'm like, ah, that's awesome, right? And that's pretty much all I get. Anyway, no, uh, I, I laugh, that's awesome. Somebody says something sarcastic to me or gives, you know, takes a shot at me, I'm like, oh, right? You know that one? You know those laughs? You got a thousand laughs, I'm sure. This laugh is a laugh of disbelief, no matter how it sounded. I have no idea what it was. But what we do know is that God says, why did she laugh? And then he offers the criticism because he knows her heart. And he goes, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Like, can't I make it so she has a baby at this point, right? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, verse 14. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Awesome. Now we have a time frame. I love these kinds of promises of God. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, however. I didn't laugh. <laughs> it's a tent, woman. <laughs> we can hear through the walls. I don't even know. And he's God. I don't know what's happening here. Anyway, I didn't laugh. Didn't do it. Not me. Sounds just like Eve in the garden, right? Right? Devil made me do it. For she was afraid, and he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, Look, at, this is where it ends. That's it. We're like, let's analyze Sarah's psyche and understand all these different things. No, the reality is, is she's a human being that looks at this and goes, have you seen the things I have to work with? <laughs> right? You went way too deep on that one. Anyway. Right? Right? And she laughs in doubt, but she laughs in doubt, and God still has mercy. God had mercy in the New Testament with John the Baptist's father, right? God has mercy, even in our doubting, even in our stupidity. And look, Sarah doesn't necessarily make, she doesn't necessarily replace first things with second things. She doesn't believe first things can happen. Does that make sense? Okay. Why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child? I didn't laugh. I didn't do it. No, but you did laugh. 
Story ends. What Sarah teaches us in this, what Abraham teaches us in this, is that there's a difference uh, even in our laughters. And God seems to know the heart and the, the motives of everything within us. And he can tell what we're doing. This is not Santa Claus looking for who's naughty and who's nice and he's writing down a list. This is simply the fact that God knows you that intimately. And by the way, it's that God that knows you so intimately that Abraham ran, hurried, ran, and hurried to spend time with. Isn't that cool? This is what we should be. This is who we should be. This is how we should run to the Father. So, verse 16 picks up and we change subjects. Let me, let me just sum up the hospitality piece with this. To put first things first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength includes every command he's ever given you, but it also includes running to fellowship with him. Offering your first and your best. Giving him all that you are. Amen? Okay, verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I absolutely love what God says here. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. We all know that the scripture talks about, um, the scripture talks about becoming a friend of God, right? And for God to actually look at Abraham and say, I should probably tell him what I'm about to do. That's an intimacy that is amazing, right? Jesus says, we don't tell our servants what we're about to do, but a friend, this is, this is a very different thing. Right? Uh, John chapter 15. Turn there if you have your Bibles. John chapter 15, verse 9, starting at verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. This is keeping first things first. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than one who would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you slaves. Listen to the line, church. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So right away what we have is not only Abraham calling, or God calling Abraham a friend, um, God treating him like a friend, we also have a more honoring state 
from Abraham. And that is, he runs to serve his Lord. He does not brashly walk up and go, what's up, dude? He doesn't. And he's not going to treat God that way. But it doesn't mean he's not intimate with him. It doesn't mean he's not close. Isn't that awesome? Right? God's not his bro. God's not his dude. But God is his friend. And that, to me, is a powerful thing. The first time we actually see uh, friend, the friend reference in the Bible is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 5 through 12. And the emphasis is actually on verse 7. But what happens here is, well, let's just turn to it. This will be good. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 5 through 12. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? I love this reflection of who God is in this prayer. Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. This is our God, by the way, church. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? It's a pretty awesome friendship, right? Second place that this appears, um, well, the last place that it appears actually is in James 2.23. Turn with me to James James chapter 2, verse 23 says this. Well, let's start with 22. You see that faith was working with his works, faith with feet, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Verse 23, specifically about Abraham. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So, when does friendship begin with God? When we keep first things first. Right? When we believe him. When we trust him. When we do what he says. Okay? And that friendship, if it is by faith, and righteousness is credited to us by faith, that friendship is forever. Isn't that powerful? The part that I want to show you, though, is found in Isaiah chapter 41. So turn to Isaiah Chapter 41. I don't know why I'm going that direction, but. What am I doing here? See, even Nathan gets his own order out. Isaiah chapter 41. Come on, flip the pages. Starting at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. Oh, so friend and servant, the disposition of the friend on our part, serving our Lord. The quality of our relationship is that we are a friend of God. I have chosen you and not rejected you. <clears throat> Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious. 
Uh, Do not be anxiously looking about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay, so this amazing reference to God uh, as a friend, this amazing reference from God to Abraham as a friend, really does take us into this next section. So, So the men rose up and they looked down to Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord goes, why are we doing this? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we tell Abraham, are we supposed to hide this from him, right? And so we get to verse 19, it says, for I have chosen him, Uh, right? We just read that in Isaiah, I've chosen him and he's a friend forever. And this is the way I talk to him. Verse 20, and the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. We're going to see more how Abraham clearly knows that the Lord here is Yahweh. Um, There is debate on who the other two men are. I don't think that there is any indication in the text of Scripture. I think there's actually better indication that they are not the other two parts of the Trinity. And I'll explain that in just a second. But anyway, so... We have them standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? How many of you know there's different ways to laugh? How many of you know there's different ways to ask questions? Right? Okay, I don't see Abraham here questioning God. I see him here legitimately asking a question, and we're going to see that play out in just a second. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away? Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Who do you think Abraham knows this guy to be? The judge of all the earth? He's not just a Lord that walked by. This is a pretty big deal, okay? But look at his question. This is, and look at his statements. These are the questions and the statements of friends. Nobody is offended here. Nobody's hurt. God doesn't walk away. Abraham doesn't walk away. This is hard stuff to talk about, but God goes, I know what I'm doing. I promise you. How many of you as parents have ever done this with your children? You know what you're talking about, but they don't think you do, right? How many of you have had your children ask you questions and ask you bold questions? Like, what the heck do you think you're doing? And how many of you have responded with, it'll be all right. That's the way I do, and it makes them mad, right? It's amazing. It's a fantastic thing, right? I heap burning coals on their head all the time. It's wonderful, okay? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing. Verse 26, so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Here is a hang up for modern Christians. Who is Abraham to God? He's a friend. How does Abraham approach God? As a servant. And what does Abraham know of himself? He's but ash and dust. There is a modern movement that walks around and says, I'm awesome, I'm beloved, I'm this. You are 
Stop acting like you're more than you are, though. Stop pushing that on something. This is what happens with insecure people. Insecure people talk about who they are in lofty ways because they actually don't believe it. And they're trying to convince themselves and everybody else that I'm prized and I'm loved and I'm highly favored and all this nonsense. But guess what? You are his friend, fine. You, walk, you approach him as a servant and you know that in your makeup, you're dust and ash. You will fade someday. Did you know that? Sometimes I wish it was sooner than later. But we will fade someday, right? To ash we will return. Verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find 50, I won't destroy it. Abraham, I am but dust and ashes. He's not putting on a show here. It's not false humility. Abraham goes, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Here's the negotiating of Abraham, right? Will you destroy this for 45? And he goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down. And God is constantly gracious. He then says in verse 30, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. Who does he also know his friend to be? A just God who can be angry. Did you know this? We didn't walk into the New Testament with Jesus and get a hippie. God is still a God of wrath. It's not that he's sitting here trying to shoot everybody with lightning bolts or something, but the idea is that he's still judge of all the earth, right? So, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I won't do it if there's 30. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said to him, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Do you kind of get God's point now? No, not Abraham, apparently. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Too late. Suppose, that should be translated one, once more, right? Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. Based on what we understand of Sodom and Gomorrah, what was God's better decision? than to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. To extract the ones that were looking at him and wipe it out. Okay? I do find it fascinating. Um, In the atheistic world, the atheistic world uh, has a problem with suffering and pain, and they love to say, how can an omniscient God, how can an all-knowing God, how can a good God allow such atrocities to go unjudged? And then when you tell the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they say, he is a mean God. Do you know you can't have it both ways? <clears throat> it is a problem, right? It is a problem. So, oh Lord, don't be angry with me. I'm going to talk again. I won't destroy it, Abraham. In verse 33. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. You notice Abraham doesn't track him down to oversee God, to make sure he's going to do it right. He just, my friend said he is good. My friend, who is God of the universe, is not going to do the same to the righteous and to the wicked. He's not. And God never will. It's an amazing, amazing truth. Through Jesus, we know that that's guaranteed because he who knew no sin became sin so that we who intimately knew sin might become the righteousness of God. Guess who God does not destroy? 
the righteousness of God. Guess who takes on our punishment? The one who knew no sin, who became sin. That does not mean his essence is sin. He took on your sin, though. Okay? Very important. Verse 33. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place because he trusted his friend. Only verse 1 of 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening uh, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now we're going to see some distinct separations from Lot's approach to Abraham's approach. But I want to speak one second to this idea of where Lot is. Where is Lot? What's the setting here? The gate of the city. Look at what Psalm 1 says. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. That describes Abraham. That describes Abraham because Abraham kept first things first. Abraham kept first things first by looking at God and saying, number one, when God shows up, I'm going to run, I'm going to hurry, I'm going to run, and I'm going to hurry. He bows down before God because he actually recognizes his God as Lord. He recognizes himself as dust and ashes. He does not belittle himself. He just actually knows who he is hospitality approaches God with a very clear knowledge of who we are. And hospitality approaches each other with a humility that says, I'm not better than you. Amen? You receive people. You welcome them. Now, guess what? I'm not going to tell you the specifics of how hospitality works because the Bible doesn't tell me how the specifics of hospitality works, which means you use wisdom, you use discernment, and be hospitable. But make sure you are starting with being hospitable towards God. Second, understand that Abraham was a friend of God, and so are you. So are you. And as a friend, guess how you can intercede with God? You can intercede with God the same way. God, please tell me you're not going to do this. Please tell me that this is, no, please help me understand this. God is not offended by you. He's not put off by you. He wants you to intercede with him in a very real, in a very serious manner. What we'll learn next week is we'll learn the opposite of this, and we're going to deal with some challenging stuff. We're going to deal with challenging stuff that every skeptic in the world hates. They don't like the next chapter, and most Christians shouldn't like the chapter either. It's challenging, but there is meaning behind it. What I want you to walk away with today is that you are a friend of God, amen, You're a friend of God, and you have a responsibility to keep first things first. Amen? And to keep first things first, that means that you are a person of hospitality towards God and others. Love the Lord, love others, right? And uh, you are also, sorry, you are also a person who intercedes as a friend would intercede. You just engage with your God. He loves to talk to you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to sit with you. Amen? Amen?